Okay, First Samuel 18. First Samuel chapter 18. What we read about last week. Okay. One more thing in between. You want to remember? Oh, sheep. Oh, yeah. Uh, God took the spirit away from Saul and put it upon David. And he was becoming angry. People noticed it and being troubled. And so they had David become to play the heart. Okay. And so we're starting to see David rise to prominence, him starting to come into the spotlight, right? And so uh, Saul was rejected. Samuel anointed David as their replacement. And we saw that um, David was chosen by completely different, or chosen for completely different reasons. Saul was chosen according to outward appearances, and David was chosen according to his heart, right? And so Saul was chosen by uh, by the peoples, by Israel's desires, by what they wanted, and David was what God wanted, right? Right. And so all the way through, we find there's a uh, a contrast going on between Saul and David. And Saul is a picture of a life lived according to the flesh, and David a life lived according to the Spirit. And so as we go through and see this back and forth between David and Saul, we all know that um, that there's a time where Saul's reigning even though God has taken his hand from him and taken his anointing off of him. And a time where David, although he's anointed and has God's hand on him, he's not on the throne yet. Right. And so there's a time that there's like a cat and mouse game. It's almost like Tom and Jerry, right? Yeah. Uh, between Saul and David. And anyway... Um, we're going to see all the way through the rest of 1 Samuel this illustration of a carnal man and a spirit-filled man uh, between the two of them as they're going cat and mouse. So maybe Tom and Jerry's not a good example because I don't know that Jerry's a little bit vindictive, isn't he? Tom's kind of the ignorant uh, punching bag. But anyway, but anyway um, rather than God immediately making... Uh, David King, instead um, of either God immediately putting him in as king or of David trying to scheme and trying to make himself king, because that's usually what we expect. We expect God to immediately just throw us right into the middle of things for his will to just come out and make sense and all of it be smooth sailing right away, right? We expect that, or we try to scheme and make it happen, right? How can I make that what I think God wants for me how can I make it happen? How can I bring things together? How can I kind of force God's hand? And instead of doing either of those, David sets back and patiently allows God to lead in his time, allows God to do things. And that's a great example for us that we don't uh, have the wrong expectation of God or the wrong expe- expectation of ourselves. And uh, so David goes back, even after being anointed, he goes back to just being David. He's watching his father's sheep. He's uh, doing the normal things that he would do. And he's got the question in his mind. He says, okay, God anointed me king, but I'm not any closer to becoming king. And then whenever uh, he's brought in to comfort crazy King Saul, and he's playing a harp for Saul, uh, he's still thinking, okay, I'm not really any closer to becoming king. There's a big difference between being king and being the royal musician, right? Right. But then a little bit later, whenever he is obeying his dad and he's, bringing food to his brothers. He's being a servant, right? Not a king. And he shows up and hears Goliath mocking and ridiculing God and God's people. And David has the Holy Spirit on him. God is with him, right? And there is a uh, a righteous anger that wells up in, in David. And David says, is there not a cause and everything? His brethren mock him, Right. Or they uh, falsely accuse him, right? Uh, Saul discourages him. And then his enemy, Goliath, is making fun of him, right? So we've got all the people around him um, discouraging him, uh, insulting him, mocking him, right? Okay. Uh, falsely accused. 
Yeah, and our immediate response is to set the record straight or vindicate ourselves, right? But that's never what the godly examples in Scripture do. Right. And they wait and they follow the passage that, uh, where it says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the yeah. Lord. And they allow God to, re- God to be the avenger, and he does a good job of it. Oh, yeah. And so it won't be too long before uh, David has the last laugh, if you will at all these people who are trying to discourage him and help him. And these are all the people that should be, excuse me, they should be on his side. They should have his back. They should be helping him. They should be encouraging him to follow the Lord, right? right. And they were all against him, but even though they were all against him, God was still with him. Um, something that has stuck with me as I've looked at all of this, though, is that God was using David's abilities that he had. David wasn't uh, taking courses on uh, how to be a king 101, right? Right. He wasn't going through and trying to figure out how to become a king. He was practicing with his slingshot. He was practicing with his harp. He was learning to take care of the sheep. He was learning responsibility. He was learning how to do all of these things. And God used David with, he used David being the person that he was. Right. Uh, We all have different personalities. We all have different likes and dislikes, we have talents, we have all these different things, and God uses those in his plan for us, just like he did David. And uh, so God brings David to where he is now, after he beats Goliath, he is now in the spotlight. Everyone in Israel knows who he is, right? He's the hero of the nation. But it wasn't because of him intentionally setting out saying, I've got to make a name for myself. All throughout it, he was... Uh, just following God. He was just uh, doing what he knew to do. He was just being David and living faithfully, right? And so even whenever he came out against Goliath, he stepped out in faith. He said, not because of my strength, not because of who I am, not because I'm anything great, but because of the God that I serve, this enemy is going to fall. Goliath's going to be defeated. And so he was even trusting God to bring him victory in that. He was trusting God to bring him to the throne. He was trusting God all throughout. And what we're going to look at tonight is he was even trusting God whenever uh, he was public enemy number one, whenever um, whenever Saul was trying to kill him, right? And so as I was thinking about this, um, just the anger and everything that Saul had toward David, I had the thought, just for the sake of a title, and I don't title stuff a lot, Hey, it's a treat for you guys. Malice in the palace. <laughs> so that's what's going on tonight. This is what we're looking at. And so uh, chapter 18, it says, And it came to pass when he had made an end of speaking unto Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would let him no more go home to his father's house. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him and gave it to David and his garments, even to his sword and to his bow and to his girdle. And David went out whithersoever Saul sent him and behaved himself wisely. And Saul set him over the man of war. And he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And it came to pass as they came... When David was returned from slaughter of the Philistines, that the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tabrets, with joy, and with instruments of music. And the women answered one another as they played and sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very wroth, and the saying displeased him. And he said, They have ascribed unto David ten thousands, And to me they have ascribed but thousands, and what can he have more but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day forward. So we'll stop right there. And we started out with uh, the relationship between Jonathan and David. It says that uh, after the battle of David and Goliath, that 
Saul inquired about David's family, about uh, who he was and what he was about and everything. And Jonathan being Saul's right-hand man, his son, the, the heir apparent to the throne, uh, was nearby as David came up and Saul was questioning David. And Jonathan is listening to David and how David conducts himself and to the spirit which he has, to the zeal that he has for his God. And I believe that's what it was that knit Jonathan's heart with David. As we've looked at Jonathan already in the past, we saw that he was the one that believed God. He was the one that had faith. He was the one that says, we're going to attack the Philistines, and our God is able to deliver, whether it be by many or by few, right? And so David and Jonathan, in a way, were very much alike. They had, as we were talking about earlier, a kindred spirit with each other, right? And so their hearts were knit together. Now, I want you all to think for just a minute. Whenever you normally think of David and Goliath, what kind of relationship comes to mind? How do you all picture it? Do you picture it? Yeah. yeah. Sorry, David and Jonathan. Whatever you picture, David and Jonathan, not David and Goliath. What do you picture? What kind of relationship? What What's it like? Best friends that do everything together. Is that what you're asking? Okay. Okay. Like brothers, best friends. Okay. Usually picture them to be quite young, right? No, about in the thirties. Well, which one? David's, or David So picture him being about the same age, right? Yeah, always, yeah. I know they're not, but... Okay. Okay, so as we look at this passage, um, a couple things come out. We know that Jonathan has been serving in the army for quite some time, right? Yeah. Uh, he was already leading a third of the army uh, back whenever he was attacking the Philistines and stuff earlier, right? Yeah. And um, he's a seasoned war hero by now, right? I'm not sure where he was at whenever Goliath was there because I can't imagine Jonathan just sitting back. But maybe Saul was forbidding him. Maybe Saul was keeping him from it, saying, hey, you're the one that's going to be king after me. I don't know. But anyway, um, I believe Jonathan was at least 15 years older than David. For several reasons. It's not just that it sounds good, but looking at looking at uh, Scripture and things. Uh, David was anointed. He was probably anointed somewhere around uh, 15 or 16 years old. It would have been a couple more years before he uh, came to the king to be the king's harp player. And then uh, by the time that he fought Goliath, it seems that he would have been right around 19 or 20. And the reason I say that is uh, after he fights Goliath, we come to this passage that we uh, read just a minute ago, verse number two. And Saul took him that day and would let him go no more home to his father's house. He put him in the army and he made him part of his soldiers, right? Mm-hmm. And in Numbers chapter number uh, chapter number one, we find that soldiers in the army had to be 20 years old. And so according to the law, according to God's command, 20 years old and upward for army. And so Jonathan has been part of the army for some years already, he's already climbed the ranks a little bit. We know that um, David was on the run from the time that he gets uh, Saul so mad at him, he won't let him come around anymore, and he's he's running like a, a, an animal from the hunter. Uh, he is in that state for about 10 years, okay? Y'all following me? Okay, there was a few years in between, right, from the time that he fought Goliath till the time that uh, he had just built up such a reputation and Saul had gotten so jealous, so angry at him that David could not come around anymore, that he was on the on the run, kind of like the animal, like I said. Yeah. And so overall, that would have put David as being somewhere, I believe he was right around 30 years old whenever I'm thinking he was around 30 years old whenever he became king okay okay I think okay was it 40 whenever he became king over Judah or over Israel overall 
Okay. And so that would have, whenever he came over all, but he was king over just Judah for about six years, I think. Six or seven years. And so he would have been 30-some years old whenever he became king after Saul dies. And so you put a few years, 20 years old, a few years, another 10 years, puts him around 33. Okay? But anyway, the reason I'm going through all of this, I'm just kind of getting an idea of where the two of them were and this friendship that they had, this understanding they had with one another. Okay? And so Jonathan would have been old enough by the time that Saul dies at... By the time Saul dies in war, Jonathan dies in war, and Jonathan has children. He has Mephibosheth, right? Yeah. At least Mephibosheth. I think there's others. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You have Ish Okay. And so you have all these things going on, and Ishbosheth was old enough to uh, old enough to become king. So anyway, um, David and Jonathan have this friendship. I don't think it was just okay. We're good buddies, and we like to hunt, and we like to fish, and we like to uh, we're soldiers. We we battle together. But instead, Jonathan is a seasoned warrior. He's learned to trust God. He's learned to depend on God. Probably would have ended up being a good king if it wasn't for Saul blowing it. And whenever he sees David stand before Saul and answer the way that he does with the confidence that he has in God, with the determination, with the, uh, the character that he has, Jonathan says, this is someone that I like. This is someone. And he, in a way, would come and take David under his wing a little bit. Okay. And so he would have been an older brother, maybe uncle type relationship there. But anyway, he loved David and they came together and it says in verse four, and this is interesting to me, that Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David in his garments. It says that they had a covenant between one another. And we'll read more about covenants that they have. But Jonathan takes his royal apparel off and he gives it to David which seems to me that it indicates Jonathan has an idea, he has a knowledge that David is going to become king. Essentially what he's doing is he's taking his things off and putting them on David, saying David is taking his place. And that shows a lot of character in Jonathan because Jonathan has heard Samuel. He heard that uh, God has ruled that David, or not David, that Saul is not going to have an heir to reign after him. That takes Jonathan off the throne, right? right? He hears that David, excuse me, not that David, David's going to be the one, but that God has chosen a man after his own heart. And so Jonathan's okay with it because he realizes it's God's people, that God's in control, that God's in charge, and he understands that, okay, God has chosen someone else, and it appears that David is the man. And so Jonathan's okay with this. And anyway, uh, so Jonathan would have been a man of character as well. He acknowledges that David is going to be the next king. He's okay with it. They later make an agreement that basically they're going to co-reign. And Jonathan says, okay, whenever you become king, I'm going to come. We'll reign together. Um, they make the covenants with one another that they're not going to harm one another, that whenever their, uh, their children, grandchildren and whatnot, are not going to harm one another. Okay. And so this is a relationship they have with each other. And Jonathan appears to be a, a godly man. He appears to be a man of character. Anyway. And so we come to this passage in verse number five. And I want to stop here for just a few minutes. But it says that David went out whithersoever Saul sent him and behaved himself wisely. He behaved himself wisely. So what does it mean to behave himself wisely? What would it look like for us? Okay, brainstorming for a minute. What would it mean to 
behave yourself wisely. Because as we look at this in Scripture, it seems as if this is kind of a a key to David's life, how he lived his life, how he was able to be successful, how God was able to use him and prosper him and to advance him along in God's plans. And this is like uh, God filled him with the Spirit and David's part in it was behaving himself wisely, right? But what does that look like? Okay. Acting as a as the image of God and being filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so um, basically being Christ-like in our actions. Okay, first thing you said, being filled with the Holy Ghost. That's the important part, right? Okay. Um, what kind of actions would go along with that with David? Self-control. Okay, self-control. That's a big one, right? He's behaving himself wisely. You compare that with Saul. Saul has no self-control. I mean, he's going and pitching javelins at people. No self-control. David had self-control. So the way that he conducted himself, the manner that he lived amongst people, the the uh, message that he was sending with his actions, right? Okay. What about humility? Humility would be part of behaving himself wisely, wouldn't it? Humility, self-control, um having character, having integrity, right? Being dependable, being reliable, uh, being courteous, being patient. He trusted God. He exalted God, right? So everywhere he was going, he was constantly pointing people to God. He was praising God, right? And so as he was going out as a soldier, could you imagine being one of the soldiers fighting along behind him, and especially after fighting behind Saul? And Saul's a coward. Saul's trying to lead by his flesh. He's trying to do things out of pride and arrogance and stubbornness, right? And then now they're falling behind David. And David is leading humbly, but boldly. We don't tend to put those two together, do we? But he is bold because he is following after the Lord. And he is encouraging the people, the Lord is with us. We are fighting for God. God has made promises to us. God has given us this battle. He has told us to fight against this enemy. He has sent us to do this, right? And God has brought victory over this and over this. They probably got sick of hearing about Goliath. They're like, but we're so small and their army's so big. Do I have to tell you again about Goliath? Do you really think I was able to win that battle? Do you think it was me? Do you think it was that rock that killed him? No, it was God. And the way that God killed Goliath, he can kill this guy too. Right? And so he's going through and he's encouraging the people. He's encouraging himself. He is leading them, not just saying, hey, I'm great. Now I'm going to lead us to victory. It's our God is great and we're serving him and he will give us the victory. And that's part of how he was behaving himself wisely, right? And so uh, filled with the Spirit, he exalted the Lord, he trusted the Lord. He walked before men with integrity. He was humble. We talked about he was patient, all these different things, right? And so just all of his life had all of these admirable qualities, right? And people were drawn to him. If we look over in Galatians chapter number 5. Now, I like some of the things that you guys were bringing out there because it goes along with this. In Galatians 5, we have the works of the flesh and the fruits of the Spirit. So verse number 19, see if this sounds like Saul. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, or made known, clearly seen, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, that's the desire for pleasure, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, 
envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. So that's the things that the flesh craves after. That's the things that, uh, if we allow the flesh to be in charge, that's the direction it leads us to. Okay? But it says in verse number 22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And so we see David aligning for the most part with the fruits of the Spirit, right? We do know that there was some uh, lust and adultery and things that went on in his life, right? Murders, whenever he allowed the flesh to be in charge. But that's not what characterized David's life, was it? For the most part, he, he behaved himself wisely. And so this is one of the reasons why living the Christian life is so important. Uh, people often have the idea that we live the Christian life, we're faithful to God, we read the Bible, we go to church uh, in order for our life to turn out well, in order for us to get things from God. But instead, what it does, it has more of an effect on us. And whenever we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, fruit is produced uh, naturally in a plant, right? And so as we are walking with God as we are being led of the Spirit as we are feeding ourselves spiritual food and learning and growing, then it's going to transform and it's going to change us into uh, these things that we read about the fruit of the Spirit, this love, this joy, peace, gentleness, meekness, kindness, goodness, long-suffering, all of these things. Uh, that's what it starts bringing out in us. But where we live for the flesh... What ends up happening is anger and envy and wrath and uh, impatience and hatred and envy and anger and all these different things. I probably mentioned this twice. But that's what ends up happening in our flesh. And this is what we see at work in the world today. People can be prospering. They can be successful. But yet we find that their flesh is in charge and there's adulteries and there's fornications and there's envy and there's wrath and there's hatred and emulation and strife. What's strife? Hmm? Fighting. Fighting. The just constant um, tension, right? And all around us, there is constant tension. People can't get along with each other because our flesh doesn't like it. But whenever we look at David here, David was the type that because the Spirit was at work in him, it was bringing out the fruits of the Spirit, and God was prospering him wherever he went, he was going out and winning battles. He was uh, able to handle himself in such a way that many of the people liked him. And he became the national hero. But even though he became the national hero, he wasn't liked by everyone, was he? So it's not the prosperity gospel. Okay, I'm going to be a good Christian and God's going to make me all these ways and everybody's going to love me and I'm going to win the battles and I'm going to be the king. Because still with David, it was a long time until he got to the throne. He had enemies. He had people that didn't, that didn't like him. He had uh, times of struggles, times of stress, and things that he went through. But at the end, God brought him to where he needed to be, and he ended up being at the throne. He ended up being exalted in the end. Right? And so David, in many sense, and very much in the sense, uh, is a lot like Joseph. You ever make that comparison? Joseph, at the beginning, he had the dreams where he was going to be uh, exalted in heaven and the sun, moon, and stars was going to bow down to him. You know, he was going to be a sheep and his stood up and all the others would bow down to him. Essentially, Joseph got the knowledge ahead of time. He was anointed, you're going to become king. But the way to become king is he was hated by the people who should have loved him. He was lied upon. He was imprisoned he was you know all those things happened to him before he ever made it to the throne right but the important thing about david and about joseph both is that through that entire process they remained faithful they continued behaving themselves wisely they continued their faith in god they continued trusting him and allowing god to uh order their steps allowing god to bring them to the place that he would have them at Right, I was listening to a, a clip from a sermon this morning, and it was talking about Job. Okay, 
And if you look at Job's life, you look at all the things he said, he said some pretty horrible things. You ever consider when you're reading through Job, some of the horrible things that Job said to God? He said, God, you're using me as a punching bag, basically. He says, God, what did I ever do? Why are you treating me this way? Right? And he is going through all of that, and he is mad at God. Right? And at the end, whenever God comes out and he's talking to Job, he says, Job, you've done right. He rebukes his friends and says, you need to ask Job to pray for you. God was never mad at Job. And so how is it that at the end, God said that Job was right and that he did well whenever Job was saying horrible things about God during that process? You ever give any thought to that? In a way, you can kind of see it because he lost his children, he lost everything. Mm-hmm. And even his wife was telling him to curse God and die. Mm-hmm. So, he, I guess he had a little bit of a right to be upset, but okay. not really a God. Okay. It just happens. No, in many ways, God does understand he made emotions and he expects us to use them, right? And Job did go through a lot of things. But the important part that was brought out from that whenever I was listening to that this morning was the fact that all those things that he said, he said in prayers to God. You ever notice that? He never stopped praying. He never walked around away and said, God, I don't believe in you. I don't like you. I'm done with you. He continued praying to God saying, I don't know what you're, why you're doing this. I don't think it's right. I don't believe that you're treating me fairly, God. But he still continued praying to God, still continued in his faith, even though he was struggling with it, right? And at the end, God blessed him for it. And God said, you were right. Because if you go all the way back to the beginning of Job, what was the, the, uh, the foundation, the background for all of that? conversation in heaven between God and Satan, right? What did Satan say he was going to do? Okay. The goal that Satan had is I'm going to make Job turn away from you. Right? And through all of that, Job never turned away from God. He got mad at God. Never turned away from God. And in the end, God said that Job had glorified God, right? Because he never fell into Satan's trap. He proved the devil wrong, even though he was mad at God at times, right? Do you think that Joseph ever prayed some of those prayers or he ever got upset and got mad at God whenever he was in the prison or whenever he was being lied on, whenever he was in slavery? Think David ever did? There were times whenever he said, um, there is but a step between me and death. God's going to let me die. Right? There were times whenever he was very upset at the circumstances. There were times that he did stupid things, right? But he never lost his faith. He never stopped. He never turned away from God in all of it. And that's one of the lessons for us as we're going through this. We need to trust God. We may not like the current step that we're on. We might not like the circumstances we're in. But we need to realize that God is God. He knows what he's doing. And in the end, uh, he is able to make all things work together for our good, right? And so as David is going through all of this, he says, okay, God says I'm going to be a king, but I'm still a shepherd. God says I'm going to be a king. Here I am playing a heart for the king. Okay? God says I'm going to be a king. Here I am back being a shepherd again while they're battling. God says, I'm going to be a king. Here I am, the food delivery boy, taking food to the soldiers out in battle, right? God says, I'm going to be a king, but here I am being uh, lied upon by my brothers, uh, mocked by the enemy, and discouraged by my leaders. But God said, I was going to be king, and here I am all alone, and everybody else has turned against me, right? How am I supposed to lead the people whenever I'm the only one and everybody else is going a different direction, right? 
He beats Goliath and he says, okay, we're making progress. Now I'm going to be the king. No, he's just a soldier. Right? And he goes on for a while and he's being just a soldier. He makes a friend in Jonathan. He's like, okay, thought I was going to be the king. Now I'm the king's son's friend. You see how all along through this, this is years going by, and he's like, how does this equal me being king? It's like you guys looking at your algebra. It's like, how does this ever add up to this? How do you ever get this answer from this equation, right? And so David's story is about as complicated as what algebra is. After God works it all out, it does check. It makes sense. But it takes a while to get to that solution. And so anyway, um, what we find in this passage, David behaved himself wisely. The people exalted him. The women were singing his praises. Just what every early 20s boy wants, right? All the women coming through and saying, oh, he's our hero. It's like one of those Hercules moments, right? And so anyway, they're singing his praises. And it says, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Essentially, what the people were saying is David is ten times better than Saul. Isn't that what that song means? We're doing math now, right? David is ten times better than Saul. But if you look at it honestly, who's the one fighting the battles? Who's the one winning? Who's the one that faced Goliath whenever Saul was being a coward? And so Saul wants the recognition without doing the work, right? He wants the blessings without trusting God. And so he is mad, and it says that he eyed David. Verse 10, the evil spirit came, because guess what? There's jealousy that came in, right? There's jealousy that came in, there's anger. Before the evil spirit first started coming, whenever there was rebellion and disobedience, right? Against God, the evil spirit came. Now there's anger, there's jealousy. The evil spirit returns. You see the kind of thing that invites the devil in our lives? And so anyway, he is jealous, he is angry. And David comes and he starts playing his harp as he did at other times. And there was a javelin in Saul's hand. Saul's already proven to be fairly mentally unstable. David was probably a little bit nervous watching that javelin. And Saul is fingering the javelin and playing with it and whatnot. And David's like, not so sure about this. Maybe I need to move somewhere else. Maybe I can play from the next room, right? Anyway, so Saul was afraid of David, verse 12. Oh, I missed verse 11. Saul cast the javelin, for he said, I will smite David even to the wall. I'm going to use him for a human dartboard. And David avoided out of his presence twice, not just once, but twice. And it says that Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him and was departed from Saul. Whenever Saul observed what was going on, whenever he had a moment to think, he's like, I am acting insane. I no longer have the Holy Spirit with me, but I'm looking at David's life and God is blessing David. God is protecting David. I couldn't hit him if I wanted to. And he was afraid. We do all kinds of stupid stuff out of fear, right? The Bible says God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of of what? Peace and of love and of sound mind? Power and of love. There you go. There was a few words. Power and love and a sound mind. Okay. And so now in verse number 13, uh, because of Saul's anger, because of his fear, because of all these things, David gets demoted, gets put over a smaller group. He still behaves himself wisely. In verse 15, wherefore, when Saul saw that he behaved himself very wisely, he was afraid of him even more. And so Saul decides, okay, I've got to do something to get rid of David. And I'm going to summarize the rest of this here because it's kind of the same thing going on. We've got the, the foundation and the same things will be going on here for the rest of this. And so Saul decides, I'm going to use either my family or my enemies to get rid of David. He decides to use his daughters for bait. And so his first daughter, his eldest daughter, Merib, he says, I want to give her to David to be wife. 
Now, if you go back to the, the promise with Goliath, there were certain things that Saul promised. Whoever comes and defeats Goliath is going to get these certain things. One of them was, he's going to marry my daughter. Apparently, some time has went by. David is still not married to Saul's daughter. And so now Saul says, uh, I'll give you my elder daughter. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. So he says, here, I'll make a deal with you. If you continue fighting for me, if you continue fighting my battles, then you can marry my daughter. You can be one of the king's family. And it seems as if there was like a a length of time or a number of battles, something in place there that David had to do. And David says, I'm not worthy to be one of the king's daughters. King's sons. I'm not worthy to marry one of the king's daughters. There you go. Glad you all are catching these things. So anyway, I'm not worthy to be... Hey, in the... Anyway. (laughs) David says, I'm not worthy to marry one of the king's daughters. And it says after a certain time that Saul, instead of marrying him, marrying his daughter off to David, he marries her off to someone else. And so Saul is not a man of his word. He's not a man of integrity. He's lied to David. He's tried to kill him. He's not held his, his end of the bargain several times. But Michael or whatever, Michelle. 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 Anyway, whatever her name is, it says that she loved David. Now, I don't believe it was that she loved him, but she was infatuated with him. David the hero. And so her as being the young girl, she's like, oh, he's a soldier and he's fighting. And he, and so she liked David and saw her about it. He's like, oh, boy, she likes him. I can use that against him. He's using his daughter for a weapon. He's using her for a bait. And so he, he speaks to David and says, well, I know I didn't marry you off to the daughter I said I would, but my other daughter over here, she loves you. She wants to marry you. And David says, I'm not worthy. And so Saul starts having some of his servants to go and talk to David and try to encourage him to marry his daughter And David says, but I don't have dowry. My family is poor. I could never pay dowry for the king's daughter. And word gets back to King Saul. And King Saul says, oh, if dowry is the problem, tell David all I want is 104 skins of the Philistines. Okay? Very gross, I know. But this, in Saul's mind, is going to be, for one, a big enough dowry to where David will be tempted to do it, right? But also a big enough task for David that there's a chance David's going to die doing it. Let the Philistines kill him. So what what does David do? Challenge accepted. Challenge accepted. Times two. He kills 200. So Saul's like, oh, if he goes after a hundred Philistines, he's going to die, and I won't have to worry about him marrying my daughter, and I won't have to worry about him taking my throne. And so David says, okay, if you want 104 skins for a dowry, make it 200. He goes out, brings 200, puts them in a sack, drops them in front of Saul, splat. Isn't that gross? (laughs) Anyway... So anyway, he does that and pays the dowry, doesn't get killed, and ends up marrying Saul's daughter. Okay? And as we continue following through this, we find that now he's married to Saul's daughter. Verse 30, he's been fighting the battles. He behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was much set by. He was a hero. Everybody loved David, except for Saul. So that didn't set well with Saul. Chapter 19, Saul spake to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. Apparently Saul was a little bit dense, not realizing that Jonathan was David's best friend. He said, hey, Jonathan, I'm jealous of your best friend. Why don't you go kill him? Jonathan comes to Saul. He takes him out, and he says, 
How can you kill David? David has never done anything against you. He's always been very obedient. He has went out and fought your battles. He's never even once attempted to do anything contrary to your will. How is it that you could be wanting to kill him? And so Saul kind of snaps out of it. He says, okay, I'm not going to kill him anymore. And so after that, David came back and he was in the palace again and he was playing his instrument. He was calming down Saul and things were back to normal after Jonathan had smoothed things over. Until verse 9, an evil spirit from the Lord was upon Saul. He sat in his house with his javelin in his hand. David played with his hand. And Saul sought to smite David even to the wall with the javelin. But he slipped away out of his presence, and he smote the javelin into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. So David comes back. Saul tries to kill him. Now he goes to his house where his wife is, tells Michael, your crazy father is trying to kill me again. And she says, well, I know dad, and if that's the case, you're not safe here. You better get out of here. And so Michael proves that she is her father's child. She lets David down throughout the or through the window, makes, a, uh, makes the appearance of David being in the bed because she knows Saul's going to send someone after David. So she puts an image, it'd be like a statue in the bed, puts a pillow of goat's hair for his head. And whenever the soldiers come saying, hey, we're looking for David, he says, shh. He's sick. He's in bed. They go back and tell Saul. And Saul says, well, bring him bed and all here. I'm going to kill him. And they go and they find out that uh, that Michael has um, tricked them, deceived them. She's learned from her father, right? And so Saul says, how could you have done this? How could you have lied? How could you have done these things to me? And she says, but David threatened to kill me. All lies, Right? And so David fled, got away, and this is where it gets really funny. So David fled, escaped, and came to Samuel. Now remember, we said that Samuel anointed Saul because the people says, you are old and about to die, and we need someone to take your place. Here's David. He's defeated Goliath. He's rose to the ranks. He's the hero of the nation. Samuel's still alive. Saul was completely unnecessary, right? So anyway, David comes to Samuel, and Saul has his spies all throughout the nation. The spies come and tell Saul, David is at Samuel's. And so Saul sends soldiers to come and kill David, and they start prophesying. Sends more soldiers, they start prophesying, more soldiers, they start prophesying. And finally Saul comes, and Saul strips his clothes off, lays down on the ground and prophesies. And David leaves. And so God makes a fool out of Saul. Uh, brings to mind where it says that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. God didn't defeat Saul at that time, didn't protect David with a sword or a spear. He put the Holy Spirit upon a wicked and demon-possessed man, really. Put the Holy Spirit upon him, made him to prophesy, and David left. Okay? And so we come to chapter number 20. And David comes to Jonathan now, his best friend. And he says, Jonathan, what in the world's up with your crazy dad? He tried to pin me to the wall with a javelin again. He came to my house. I had to leave through the window. I went to Samuel. He sent soldiers after me. And then God delivered me out of his hand. And Jonathan seems a little bit naive here, a little daft maybe. And he says, oh, my dad's not going to do anything unless he runs it by me first he overestimates his relationship with his father. He says, Saul's not going to try to kill you unless he tells me about it. And David says, he's not telling you because he knows we're friends. And so Jonathan says, okay, here, I'll put a test to, to, to dad and see what's going on with him. You stay out here. You hide for a little bit. And I'm going to, uh, he says, there's a feast that takes place. He's going to expect for you to show up. And if you don't show up, if he is angry and furious and raging, I'm going to know that he wants to kill you. But if he's okay with you not being there, you know that you've misunderstood it and everything's okay. And this is the whole thing about him shooting the arrows in the field. You all remember the story, right? Mm -hmm. 
So anyway, the first night, Saul doesn't say anything because he assumes that David is uh, ceremonially unclean. The second night, though, he asks Jonathan, he says, where is he at? And he says, oh, he asked permission for him to go and spend time with his family. And I said, yeah, go ahead and do it. And Saul begins to rant and rave against Jonathan. And so in chapter number 20, in verse number 30, it says, Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said unto him, Thou son of the perverse, rebellious woman, do not I know that thou hast chosen the son of Jesse to thine own confusion, and unto the confusion of thy mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse liveth upon the ground, thou shalt not be established, nor thy kingdom. Wherefore now send and fetch him unto me, for he shall surely die. So what he's basically saying to, to Jonathan is, if you were any son of mine, you would not ally yourself with David because you are destroying my kingdom by being his friend. So basically he's saying you're an illegitimate son. That's that whole thing about uh, perverse and rebellious woman and uh, under the confusion of thy mother's nakedness. Basically, he he's saying, you are acting as if you were never my child, as if your mother had cheated with someone else. You're not acting like I'm your father. Okay? That's, that's what that whole thing is meaning. And he's saying, as long as David is alive, you're never going to become king, and you act like you're okay with that. And so, go get David. I know you know where he's at. Bring him to me. I'm going to kill him right now. And so the next day, Jonathan goes out. He shoots the arrows. He uh, acts like he's practice, practicing his archery to throw all of uh, Saul's spies off the scent. So they're not going to be out there saying, hey, Jonathan's going out to meet David. No, Jonathan's going out to, to shoot his arrows. He took his little buddy, his little arrow fetcher with him, and he, he's out there, he's shooting arrows in the field. And so that's to kind of throw, off, throw them off the scent. After all that's done, uh, they say their goodbye. They hug each other's neck. They make their promises. They have their vows. And um, verse number 14, going back just a little bit. It says, And thou shalt not only while yet I live show me kindness of the Lord that I die not, but also thou shalt not cut off thy kindness from my house forever. Know not, while, or know not when the Lord hath cut off the enemies of David, everyone from the face of the earth. Jonathan acknowledges and he says, I know God has chosen you. I know you're going to become the king, but whenever you are king, don't kill me and my family. I want to still have this friendship and don't let uh, the kingdom come between our friendship. Okay? They make a vow between one another. Of course, Jonathan dies the same day as Saul. But David keeps this promise. He looks out Mephibosheth and shows kindness to his household. What they would normally do is whenever a king would take over, he would kill anyone else that could possibly have a tie or a claim on the throne. And this is Jonathan saying, I know this is the way things normally work, but David, out of love and respect for one another, let's not treat our families this way. And so they, they make the vow, they make the covenant with each other because Jonathan has accepted that Saul is not king, that David is king. Okay, And so David makes a promise to Jonathan because he's trusting God to make him king. He doesn't have to worry about all these other enemies around him. He doesn't have to worry about Jonathan's family because if God says he's going to be king, he's going to be king. right? And so whenever we come to the end of chapter number 20, we have um, David leaving the palace him leaving the presence of Saul. He's no longer Saul's right-hand man. He's no longer the, the leader of the king's army. He's no longer welcome. And he's being, as I said before, he's being hunted down like an animal. Okay, Him and Jonathan are going to see each other occasionally, but they've got to be separated because Jonathan's dad's trying to kill him, right? And there's this time of tension that, that begins here for the next, as I said earlier, 10 years where David is on the run from Saul, but God is using this time to build up David, to strengthen David, to um, refine him, like silver is refined in the fire, right? And God's doing this, and he's bringing about 
Saul's destruction, and David's strengthening. And that's what's going on throughout chapter uh, chapter number uh, 18, 19, and 20. And so there's a, uh, a new season for David's life. So what I want us to take away from these chapters is we see that God takes care of his children all the way through this, right? God's taking care of David. We see that uh, though we're his children, we're not exempt from difficulties. David did not want javelins to him. David did not want to have to be separated from Jonathan. He didn't want to have to live in caves. He didn't want to have to keep running from place to place, right? Escape out of windows. He didn't want to do all of those things. But in our Christian lives, we're living for God, we're living for the Lord, and things will be difficult sometimes. And by the way, because just because we behave ourselves wisely, just because we are living for God, doesn't mean that everyone's going to like us. Okay? Uh, but we also learn from this that God can orchestrate our lives to fulfill his plans, that every step of the way is bringing us closer to where he wants us to be. And as I've kind of tried to point out all the way through here, our job in all this, God is orchestrating, God is bringing things about. God was making people to like David. God was bringing circumstances into his life. He was protecting him. Even the bad things, God was working together for his good, right? God was doing all of that. What was David's part? Trusting and, trusting and following. Okay, trusting and following. He trusted God. He behaved himself wisely. Right? So for us as Christians, that's our part as well. We need to trust God, behave ourselves wisely. We may not know what the next step is. We may not understand what God's doing. We may not even like it. But through it, we're behaving ourselves wisely. We are... Uh, walking humbly. We are being uh, people of character and of integrity. We're treating people around us well. We are trusting God's promises. We are living by his principles, right? We're behaving ourselves wisely while God is writing the story and he's putting the next step ahead of us. And so we're trusting him to do that. But we learn from Saul that whenever we reject God, we find enemies where there are no enemies. David was not Saul's enemy, was he? And really, and this was something that was poignant that was pointed out to me, is whenever Saul is on the battlefield, whenever he is finally struck down, whenever he is smoked, whenever he dies, the one person that probably could have brought them victory and could have kept him from dying on the battlefield was the one that Saul had spent his entire life trying to kill. Can you imagine how much differently that day on the battlefield would have turned out? If David had been there. So we find enemies where there aren't any. We find problems where there aren't any. Whenever we are rejecting God in his way. Uh, and ultimately, we find that sin takes us further than we want to go, keeps us longer than we want to stay, and costs us more than we want to pay. And Saul is a prime example of that. If you would have just, just look at it this way, if Saul would have trusted God and behaved himself wisely, how would Saul's story have turned out? Yeah. And he could have been remembered in history as one of Israel's good kings. He could have united the nations, beat their enemies, strengthened them, uh, made them more godly, more wealthy even, right? He could have done all those things, but he spent most of his time as a king chasing David and running from his enemies. Isn't that nuts? And so whenever you live for the devil, whenever the devil is the one that is, or your flesh, we can say, well, we don't live for the devil. Whenever the flesh is the one calling your shots, whenever you're living for the flesh, you are going to be fighting the wrong battles. You're going to be chasing the wrong enemies. You're going to be missing out on great blessings and great benefits that would be there if we'd follow God. You're going to waste your life away with allowing the flesh to be in charge because that's what happened to Saul. Saul wasn't, you know, he wasn't some drunkard in the gutter. He was a king. And because the flesh was in charge, because he did things according to his flesh and according to the devil, he went nuts and he was a total failure. Even though by many of the world's standards, 
They would have said, hey, he was a king. He had a lot of people he could order around. He was in charge of a lot of people, right? Lived in a palace. But he was a mess. And David had a lot more peace in his cave than Saul had in his palace. So, we got anything before we close? Okay, well, let's pray and wrap it up. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. And we do thank you for this time that we have in your word, Lord. And I thank you, Lord, just for the time that I've been able to study it and the way that it's helped my heart and it's encouraged me. And Lord, I, I know that we try to try to be in charge. We try to take control. We try to figure things out, Lord. And I know that ultimately you're God and we're not. And we need to allow you to be in charge. And Lord, I know that our part in it is to just be faithful, to trust you, and to uh, to walk according to the way that you'd have us to, to behave ourselves wisely. Help us to remember this. Help us to do so. And we thank you for all you do. We just ask you guide our steps and direct our paths. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. And amen.